Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. It is my honor today to welcome back to the program, Chris Kastner, the president and CEO of HII, Huntington Ingalls Industries, the world's largest military shipbuilder that makes everything for the United States Navy from the nation's nuclear-powered aircraft carriers to its amphibious ships, destroyers, and nuclear attack and ballistic missile submarines. It's also a leader in unmanned underwater systems, as well as an increasingly capable technical services, training and simulation, IT, big data, and AI company. Chris, always a pleasure having you on the program. Welcome back. Yeah, Vago, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, really appreciate being able to talk to you today. But before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air warfare and HII our naval coverage. And HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, are sponsoring our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's uh, annual symposium. And check out our normally weekly Cavus Ships podcast, co-hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who are going daily with their program in order to bring you the very best from SNA uh, on a daily basis. Chris, thanks very much again uh, for joining us. Great to have you on. Inflation, supply chain, and talent uh, loom large for every uh, CEO. You and I have talked about these issues uh, before. And I want to start with inflation. HII is the world's leading shipbuilder. Uh, It's also the world's leading maker of unmanned underwater systems. It's a tech services company. Uh, It's a growing IT company uh, and a growing AI company in terms of the technology you guys are working uh, to develop. What's the impact on the enterprise and how are you working with your customers, for example, for equitable contract adjustments and what have you that that stem from uh, inflationary pressures? Yeah, so that's a a very good question and and really relevant for us right now. Uh, I I think I think it's, uh, I think the industry's done a fair job of of describing the impact of inflation on labor uh, and the supply chain. There there are other areas of inflation uh, that that really haven't been captured as much and talked about as much. Uh, We're we're seeing uh, inflation uh, uh, in in the energy that we buy, uh, in the insurance that we buy, in the medical expense that we have, uh, and, and and those are. Uh, a bit uh, secondary uh, and not as obvious, but just as relevant and, and show up uh, in the price of the product so that, uh, that we ultimately sell. Uh, so not only does it impact the ships under production, because those usually show up as overhead expense, but they show up in, in ships that are yet to be put under contract and, and make them, them more expensive. So um, obviously on the stuff we're yet to price and we're about to price, we'll make sure that uh, those are priced fairly, and, and we'll negotiate those uh, with the customer. Uh, but the ships under contract, it absolutely has an impact, um, and we manage that uh, through our estimates of complete process on a on a quarterly basis. Now, um, the customer has said uh, that that they will work with us uh, if if there are issues in that regard. Um, but actual equitable adjustments to contracts, uh, I'm not sure that is going to manifest. Um, uh, and uh, they have said uh, that they would protect suppliers, and, and I think that's 
the right thing to do. We have a, a bit of a fragile supply chain, and they need to uh, protect their supply base. Uh, but we ultimately have not uh, had discussions around nor uh, commitment relative to equitable adjustments on contracts for uh, inflationary effects as of yet. Um, I'm, I want to get to uh, supply chain and obviously on uh, the, the talent side of things, which is obviously a, a, a limiting factor. You know, you talked about some of the other factors that may be driving uh, inflation, right? So energy costs may be going somewhat uh, down, but you mentioned medical and other um, uh, personnel-related uh, costs. Um, how do you square this circle, right? I mean, Washington expect, uh, excuse me, Wall Street expect, expects a certain return from you. At the same time, you know, you may be under fixed price contracts or contracts that might not, uh, you know, have as much wiggle room in it. How do you how do you make this all work out to keep both your customers, your suppliers, and your shareholders happy at the end of the day? Yeah, so that's the balancing act, right? And um, so when we assess our budgets and our and our overhead expenses, uh, we have to assess, you know, what's reasonable and um, and what we can uh, pass on to the customer versus because we do have some cost type contracts and and what uh, the employee can pay. But we're not really not in the environment to uh, push uh, some of the expenses onto the employee. As, as you know, um, there's significant demand uh, uh, and increases uh, related to employee expenses as well. So it's, we really don't want to uh, make the or, or ask the employee to pay this. Um, so it's it's definitely a challenge. Now, I will say uh, that we do have some protection under our contracts uh, uh, for inflationary effects, where we have EPA clauses, uh, right. which are economic price adjustment clauses on some of our contracts. That provides us some protection, but that is still funding that the customer needs to go get. Um, so it, it does create pressure um, within the budget. You uh, mentioned uh, budget. I want to get to uh, supply chain and manpower uh, in uh, a moment, but it look, is looking increasingly likely that we're going to be living under a full year uh, continuing uh, resolution. This is stuff that you experienced when you were COO uh, and certainly when you were uh, CFO uh, and, and we were living uh, you know, paycheck to paycheck, if you will. Uh, what are the implications uh, across your business lines, especially on the technical services side of the house? Uh, that are much, much, you know, they're, they're less of long-term, much more short-term contracts. You don't have new starts. What are the impacts and implications that uh, folks in Washington and elsewhere need to know that happens to an HII if we're living under a full year CR? Yeah, so obviously we're closing the year right now, and I, I really don't want to comment on financial implications directly, Vago, and I know you appreciate that. Uh, but generally uh, within both shipbuilding and mission technologies. Delays in awards uh, create unpredictability uh, with our workforce and our staffing plans um, and, and create challenges uh, in, in establishing schedules for ships. Uh, and uh, it's just the last place you want to be uh, because you want to be able to start your supply base and keep them healthy. So any continuing resolution ever uh, creates a challenge. Um, now, Fortunately, uh, a lot of our stuff is under contract, so it's not an immediate financial issue. Um, uh, but these are long-term, long-term uh, scheduling issues that we have, and we need some predictability. And so any CR just creates a level of um, unpredictability that, that is a challenge. Do you think that the combination of the CR and some of the inflationary pressures 
uh, sort of increase the spirit, uh, both within the Navy and industry to work more closely with one another and to make sure that we get to the right outcomes here. Because at the end of the day, you guys both intimately need each other to succeed. There's really no separation between the objectives of the Navy and uh, our primary customer and, and our management team. We, uh, we get together to solve problems, right? Uh, and, and when we have challenges such as this, uh, the politics tend to go out the, out the window. And we, right. what we want to do is get the ships uh, built as efficiently and as quickly as possible because the Navy needs them. Um, so so we, we tend to work very well with our customer um, to try to achieve those objectives. Uh, it, it is uh, very much a hand-in-glove relationship that you guys uh, have uh, with the Navy and have had for more than uh, uh, 120 years. Um, global supply chains, you know, you mentioned this uh, in, in your uh, first answer, uh, Chris, uh, they remain strained. They remain strained by demand after COVID, the war with Russia, the decoupling with China. Uh, we're shifting away from just-in-time uh, to just-in-case supply chains, which we've heard from senior leaders. Um, how's your supply chain performing, especially those that produce a lot of very unique componentry that goes into the shipbuilding side, a lot more mom and pop shops than, than maybe we see elsewhere in the industry and, and, and really caters uh, to the warship market, which, which is a relatively small market compared with some of the other stuff they're doing. How are you working with your suppliers to ensure they remain healthy so that they're there to support you and support the customer? Yeah, the, the supply chain is really stabilized uh, over the last six to 12 months where we had some real issues mm-hmm. coming out of out of COVID where, where there was unexpected delays really related to staffing uh, that we had to manage through our programs, but it, but it, it is, it is stabilized. And um, the good news is uh, the VCS program and the DDG program have really good uh, uh, project plans related to fragile suppliers and have been very successful in flowing funds uh, to suppliers that, that need assistance relative to capital or uh, employment um, or engineering talent, but uh, so those programs have reached out, and they're really um, uh, barometers of success relative to uh, keeping the supply chain healthy. Now, I'm not saying that there's still not fragile places in the supply chain. There are, uh, but the programs have done a pretty good job of identifying uh, where the issues are. Um, and additionally, and we need to continue to remind everyone, and I think everybody knows this, is the best thing we can do for the supply chain is consistently uh, and on schedule place the orders. So this is where CR come, uh, uh, shows up as being a challenge. If there is a CR uh, or any CR, it delays putting uh, suppliers under order. And I, I might be able to deal with that at my level uh, as the prime, but some, some of these suppliers really need consistency in their order flow. It's uh, uh, certainly the case, uh, you know, just about everywhere and, and, and folks have to bear uh, that uh, in mind, because this is a, a, a unique and very, very precious uh, ecosystem. Uh, speaking of which, on, on the talent side of things, um, you guys have long focused uh, and prided yourselves on, on recruiting uh, top talent, uh, training it, uh, and then re- retaining those uh, folks. Uh, your apprenticeship program, uh, I know I've said this before, and maybe our audience gets tired of hearing about it, is as selective on the trade side as Harvard is. Uh, in terms of the number of applicants you guys have historically gotten. Uh, as you ramp up ship and submarine production rates, uh, growing and retaining those talent, uh, those skills are, are, are critical and in, indeed becoming an increasingly limiting uh, factor. 
Um, at the same time, we've seen, you know, sort of a great resignation wave. Uh, we've seen um, less people interested in, in, in going into uh, the, the trade. How do you assess where you are now in your ability to get talent, to train it up, to retain it, uh, and, and to keep them motivated uh, right. Um, I think you and I talked about this, you know, that when overtime hours become available, people weren't signing up for those overtime hours the way that they used to. Um, how, how, how is the whole talent uh, uh, calculus on your end working? And what are some of the things you guys are doing to make sure that you have uh, as many skilled people on your side as possible? Yeah, I'll tell you the good news, Vago, is uh, people are taking overtime again, which is a, a, a good indicator, right? It's not uh, it doesn't mean we've, we've uh, uh, gone back to, you know, 1975 uh, manufacturing environment, but people are actually uh, taking overtime again and attendance is better. So those, those are definitely positives. I, I tell you, very challenging times coming through COVID and you and I have spoke, spoken of this and um, attracting talent and then retaining talent. Um, and so we identified that early on. Uh, we, we, we saw what was happening. And what we've done is we've just doubled down on our apprentice schools. You mentioned it previously. Uh, the apprentice school at Newport News is uh, arguably, uh, and I believe, probably the best in the nation, if not the world. I just really believe that. Um, and uh, Ingalls has an apprentice school uh, that is quickly coming up to, coming up to par uh, with Newport News's. And um, so we're doubling down on the apprentice school because we find that when shipbuilders or, or pr- prospective shipbuilders choose shipbuilding as a career. It means they've gone to the apprentice school. They said, hey, look, I want to go to the apprentice school. They stay. We have an over an 80% retention rate over 10 years in the apprentice school. We don't hold them with, with funds uh, and say they have to pay it back if they, don't, um, if they don't stay, but they all stay and they become the leaders of our manufacturing organization. So we're doubling down the apprentice schools. Uh, we're focusing on uh, community colleges. We're focusing on a relationship with the high schools uh, because we really need to identify and build a workforce that has chosen this as a career. And when they choose it as a career, they stay. Uh, and uh, it's just a different manufacturing uh, workforce than we've had historically. We, we understand that uh, and that this is how we're dealing with it. And we think we'll be successful. Uh, we're also investing pretty heavily in training uh, the craft, but also leadership training of first level supervision the foreman, the general foreman, to ensure that they're supported as they go go through this um, uh, bit of a challenging environment. Uh, so not only do you need to hire them and retain them, but you need to train them to make them proficient and make sure they have all the tools to be successful. Um, so that's that's what we're doing in shipbuilding uh, in order to uh, uh, to ensure that uh, we deliver, we build and deliver these great ships. And, and really quickly on the technical services, uh, on uh, the IT, AI, and all the other sides of the company, uh, unmanned systems, are you, are, you being a, are you able to access uh, the kind of talent you need in the, in the timescales that are relevant? We are. And it's, a, it's a different world, as you know. Uh, it's, a, it's a different competitive environment. Uh, we're competing not only with defense players in the, or in the services space, but also in the commercial space. So uh, we have similar challenges. We um, we need to pay a competitive salary and have uh, very good benefits, and we need to demonstrate why HII um, has the mission that people can buy into uh, because they just want challenging work. Uh, that's the discriminator that we're trying to put forth 
uh, to uh, prospective candidates is that we have really interesting and challenging work that is very important to the nation. Um, we've been successful in that regard, uh, but it is a challenge. Uh, speaking of interesting and challenging work, uh, HII is radically different today than it was five years ago. Uh, you guys build carriers, amphibs, destroyers, uh, subs on the attack and on the ballistic missile side. Uh, maybe soon, uh, new kinds of uh, warships as well, uh, technical services, unmanned systems, and as I said, IT uh, and AI. That potentially allows you to think very differently about problems and solutions. Brian Clark of the Hudson Institute is a regular guest, and he's argued we need to shift away from developing individual programs to developing entire capability sets. And, and that's where sort of your skill set uh, comes into play. These deals have all, Chris, changed HII. How do they in turn change how you and your team look at delivering solutions across DOD? And maybe how does DOD need to take advantage of the kind of skills that you guys have built in order to help solve some of its bigger problems? Yeah, well, you, you said it right. It's solutions. And I, I have a lot of respect for um, uh, Mr. Clark, uh, and, and, and I agree with him. This is, this is about solutions. When we, could, when we go and visit the COCOMs now, and we talk to them about things they can use or knit together of different programs, knit together to solve a problem uh, that they have that they can utilize almost immediately uh, and we can go to them and present those sort of initiatives, uh, and they say, hey, look, let's, let's try that out. Let's put it into a war game. Um, we really feel like uh, our strategy has been validated. Uh, and this is about ships, unmanned ships, surface ships, ISR, and data, and the speed of data um, getting to the decision maker so they can execute on their mission. Um, so it, it's fundamentally changed the company. I think the nature of, of how our customer is going to fight the fight uh, has been evolving and is fundamentally changing. We need to be right there with them to do that. Let me just ask one uh, quick follow-up on that. Um, do, do you, you know, but on the one hand, there is this uh, sense that, for example, acquisition regulations kind of get in the way of that. Uh, and sort of the, just sort of, we have a tendency of sort of doing the things the way that we've done them. You talked about talking to the COCOM. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about changing the way that we do this uh, from the senior leadership at the department. Do you see this translating into a more open approach to try to do this, this sort of uh, bigger thinking, more integrated thinking about how we get to solve some of these complicated problems instead of saying, hey, Chris, I want you to you know, give me uh, a very smart unmanned underwater vehicle, build a different kind of destroyer for me over there and do a big data thing for me over there. Are you, are you getting a sense that folks want to bring this stuff together and think of it more holistically? I think it has to go there, right? I think, I think if you can get to the COCOMs and they can be solving problems with a, a solution uh, that you're providing, and it's not necessarily a program of record, uh, but it, it's simply a solution that's knitted together based on data and products uh, and solutions that you could potentially provide. Um, I think it has to go there. I think I think that there will be a bit of an evolution of the acquisition system for solutions more than just platforms. I think that's already happening, and I think it's got to continue. Um, let me uh, take you to a question of uh, capacity. Capacity is a limiting factor across manufacturing, uh, right? Whether on new construction or on uh, sustainment, we're struggling to get up to two attack uh, submarines a year and a ballistic submarine uh, a year. Uh, ship repair capacity, both in public and private yards, are also uh, constrained. How are you working with the Navy to increase capacity 
capacity in new construction, whether nuclear or conventional, as well as on the maintenance side uh, of the equation, because we have a lot of sea power that's sidelined because we just can't get them through the yards fast enough. Yeah, so we are, we are working very closely with our partner, um, uh, uh, General Dynamics, and uh, and the Navy uh, on capacity uh, within the uh, submarine industrial base. Uh, there's been significant investment uh, in capital in, in order to support us there. Um, the Navy's absolutely supported uh, some additional uh, with additional capital. Um, and so uh, from a facility standpoint, a capital standpoint, I think we're in a, in a very good place. The, the biggest challenge we have is labor, right? It's, it's qualified labor uh, uh, to execute on the, on the jobs. And um, we just went over what we're doing about labor. I know General Dynamics is working very hard on, hard on it as well. And our success in those, those programs is going to be based on if we can attract and retain uh, the quality labor to, to execute. Are you, are you comfortable you guys will? I am. I am confident we will. Our, our time is uh, running short, and I've got a couple of more questions uh, that I want to ask you. Um, uh, one is um, sort of the nature of contracts and how uh, they can help uh, the entire process move faster. We, we heard from the CNO once more, uh, Admiral Gilday at Surface Navy Association, you know, uh, chided industry as he, as he does at almost every opportunity uh, that, uh, you know, that he feels industry is not moving uh, as fast as it needs to on programs as well as on maintenance. But friends uh, in industry and the Navy itself tell me that the key to change is how you, how the customer constructs contracts. Uh, we've heard about that from Air Force Secretary Kendall, uh, that you know, smart contracting can get you to better outcomes and get you incentivized folks, ultimately. I wanted to ask you about that. Right, right now, there are a lot of fixed price contracts. Uh, there are countless changes that are often asked for by the customer, which makes it very difficult to get the kind of speed uh, at the end of the day. And, and you have shareholders to answer to and a board to answer to. How can we use contracts to incentivize in a way that that not just makes uh, your customer happy, but makes you and your investors uh, as as well as your team uh, happier, right? I mean, some of this is frustrations for the folks on the deck plates uh, doing the work. Yeah, so Vago, you're, you're, that's a question close to my heart. You know, I'm a formal, former contracts guy, so I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but I would I would I would separate into two two kind of separate sort of contracting issues here on 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 shipbuilding, major shipbuilding procurement contracts. They have to be the same. They have to be the same configuration and they can't be changed. Right. And if you can if we can buy them uh, uh, in uh, multi-year procurements or bundled, it just buys down a significant significant amount of cost and schedule risk and then leave it alone and let the shipbuilders execute. Right. So there's a couple things in that. Right. You got to get the right price and schedule starting out. Um, you have to order all that material so you don't have that risk, and then you have to stay away and let them execute, right? And don't change things. And if you do that, shipbuilders are going to be successful. So I don't, I don't think there's and, and all the contract mechanisms in the world are in place already to do that if we just execute to it. Uh, so, so on new new builds, I think we're fine um, if we execute that way. On um, services is a bit different, right? There, there's because of the backlog of maintenance. Uh, it's, it's, it's been very challenging, as you would expect, both in the public and the private yards. And once the ships are in, uh, it, the, uh, the temptation to do more work than you had planned, because so much work needs to be done uh, on those boats and ships when they come in for maintenance, 
is, is tempting. And unfortunately, that's what we do. So uh, having a fixed scope of work with a contracting approach that supports that and supports the schedule and incentivizes the schedule is absolutely something that should be done. I think that's been spoken about. I think um, uh, that, that that's a smart thing. Uh, and and it, if we do that, we'll get more predictability in our maintenance schedules. Uh, uh, but we just can't have scope creep uh, in maintenance either because that will obviously delay things. Um, uh, so, it, no, no, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I tell you, there, I, I'll tell you, Bob, I, I think there are adequate contracting mechanisms in place. Uh, I think we, ju- we ultimately need to have conversations uh, between uh, the customer and the and industry of what are we trying to achieve and let's pick the correct contract type that already is contemplated by the FAR uh, and utilize that. Uh, you know, it, it reminds me uh, what Hondo Gertz used to say, which is, hey, guys, you know, if, if you know the tanks are always a problem, make sure you put the tanks in the contract as opposed to leaving them out. And then we have to go back and renegotiate the whole contract because it's like, oh, you know, or on individual items try to get a more holistic sense of what needs to be done and then stick to that uh, 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 would, would seem to make uh, a lot of sense. Um, l- let me take you two more questions. I know your, your time is brief, uh, uh, but I, I need to ask you this. The, the Navy has changed its fleet size uh, figures so often uh, and for so long that Congress starting next year is, is going to be taking uh, that planning portfolio or uh, away from the Navy uh, to a degree, no matter who's doing it. What's your outlook uh, for shipbuilding, which still remains not just near and dear to the heart, but uh, near and dear to the company, but actually at the heart of the company and the majority of your business? Yeah, so my outlook for shipbuilding is very positive. I, I think everyone saw the 23 budget, all our programs supported with some increases on, on, on the ANFIBs and some clarity around ANFIBs. So uh, very positive on the outlook for shipbuilding uh, over the next five or 10 years, and maybe even beyond that. Uh, so I think that's uh, I think that's very positive. Now we just need to execute, uh, and that's that's a great place to be. Where um, the only worry you have is execution. Uh, now, in regard to the three uh, the the shipbuilding study that's going to be done, uh, I think that's been looked at a number of times, uh, and I think each of those experts and I have a lot of respect for the Navy team that put together their force structure assessment. I uh, these are very talented people uh, that. Um, know what's going on in the world and know the missions that are being executed and know what they need to execute their missions. So uh, I've got a lot, a lot of confidence in that. Uh, but but it's, if, if the Congress wants to look at it again, I, I think validating those assumptions are fine. Uh, but I think it'll, it'll show uh, ultimately that our outlook for shipbuilding is still uh, as it is today, which is very positive. We're going to build a lot of ships uh, and, and we need to get on with it. Um, we've got a minute left. Uh, Navy is embarking on several major uh, new shipbuilding programs. Senior leaders maintain they've learned lots of lessons uh, to ensure that new programs are more thoughtfully uh, executed. Uh, what are the keys, uh, Chris, to getting the future destroyer, cruiser, submarine, amphib, whether it's a light one or a big one, right from your standpoint and also delivered fast? Finish the design before you start to build it and make sure that you've uh, validated that design before you start to build it. And if there's any critical systems, that are being inserted that need to be understood, make sure you have a land-based test facility that tests those out before you integrate them on the ship. Those two things for me, the most important things, uh, and then choose a, choose a shipbuilder that, that can execute on it is probably the third. 
Chris, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, look forward to having you back on uh, again uh, in a little bit when we get uh, to Navy League. Thanks so very much for your time. Thanks, Vago. Always appreciate it. Have a good day.